Hi folks, welcome to Two Feet Apart. This is an intersectionally inclusive space where community meets storytelling. It's a space that is nurtured by vulnerability and the sharing of our stories because they are our greatest strengths and our strongest powers. With that in mind, happy listening. Hi everyone and welcome back to Two Feet Apart with me, your host P.T. Patra. Today I am super excited to chat with Dr. Amara Pope. Amara, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me today. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Of course. I am a PhD graduate. I just completed my studies in media and I was looking at how different representations of Canadianness was articulated by different musical artists. I found that Canadian R&B as a very important cultural contribution to Canadianness was often overlooked or went unrecognized for a long time because it was associated with many immigrant identities and associated with also a, a genre that was traditionally organized to group exclusively black and US identities. So I found that it was a really important study to just look at that history of Canadian R&B and how it's evolved today to include more identities. And that's just the academic side. In terms of my professional career, I am now a marketing manager of North America for a global telematics company in construction. Essentially, I'm working in marketing for a company with heavily male white male-dominated industries. So being a minority woman in these spaces in academia and in industry has been quite the roller coaster, but I'm very much an advocate for representing diversity in all spaces I participate in. I love that. And I love there's. I feel like there's so much to unpack there. Um, can you tell us a little bit about kind of what inspired your PhD study? Because that sounds incredible and very fascinating. Yes. As a person who's grown up and was born and raised in Canada, I saw different facets of Canadian lifestyles. I was born in Scarborough, Ontario, and there I was surrounded by so many immigrant cultures. My parents are both born and raised in Trinidad and Tobago, so they're immigrants. And I felt the special connection to the, the roots that I have in Trinidad, as well as to the associations with multiple cultural identities that surrounded me in Scarborough. But in grade two, my family decided to move to this place called Elmira, Ontario, not as well known as Scarborough. It is a very small town. I was surrounded by predominantly white population. We had Mennonites riding horse and buggies where we were visibly different and culturally different. I was the only brown girl in my school, in my classrooms. And I felt that idea of difference being underrepresented and under and just not as well known in um, the spaces that I was now in as a grade two student. <laughs> and so I found that media didn't really represent people who looked like me, nor did they voice uh, cultural identities that were outside of the predominantly white society. And so I even had a student come up to me and ask me if I was born like this or if I tanned a lot. And it was a, oh yeah, it was, it was interesting because I knew that it was a, an innocent ignorance. She genuinely just didn't understand the concept of different cultural identities. So that I didn't know a grade two experience would then come to inspire what I was really passionate about is representing diversity. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm curious to know a little bit more about your experience kind of once you guys moved and you were living in this smaller town or small, is it a town? It's small. Or, <laughs> it's, yeah. Um, yeah. 
because I had similar experiences. We moved a lot growing up and all of them were in predominantly white spaces. So um, I'm curious what your experience was. Did you face a lot of um, racism and microaggressions and things like that growing up? Definitely. I mean, I was lucky to find few key friends who were interested in learning about the different cultural identities that I held and, you know, represented, they'd come over and they would learn what doubles and roti and curry chicken was that my parents would make or listen to the soca music we had playing on the radios. So that was really fun. And it was radio, let me say, on the internet, we would stream it from Trinidad because our mainstream airways did not play the kind of music my parents listened to. So I had a few friends that were definitely interested in learning about it, but in classrooms, I had, as I, I provided that example of that young girl asking me if I tanned, I had classmates call me the n-word I just out of ignorance and misunderstanding they had a there was a boy who had a crush on me and they teased him for um liking n-word women mm-hmm. so you know it was just uh it was a very much a lack of awareness and I think that as you know they grew up and you know we became young adults they were very much open to speaking with me at a more mature and educated level to learn more about, you know, my background. But as young kids that under exposure to those different identities definitely fell through in our conversations and our communications and classes. Mm -hmm. That's a really good way to put it. And I think um, that it's important that, you know, that all kind of grew and evolved together. Like as time went on, they came back and circled back and had those conversations. So that's, um, that's amazing. And then back to your PhD study, because yeah. <laughs> I find this super fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the conclusions that you were able to draw from this? Definitely. As I mentioned, I found that a lot of Canadian r music was underrepresented. And I saw mm-hmm. that not only just in academia, but on mainstream airwaves and television stations. I remember growing up, I'm a 90s kid. So I remember loving to listen to this music that I'd have to from the online you know not the most legal way so when you'd pull it and download yeah. it but it or just getting it on youtube for example and putting it on my little mp3 players and it wouldn't have it on the radio and then finally hearing you know drake and some other artists masari on the radio you'd hear danny fernandez all these artists mixing r&b with their cultural identities as well as pop and i think that really helped amplify that visibility and that audibility of RMD when they mixed it with more pop sounds because that was more traditionally accepted. Mm-hmm. I investigated how different genres of music were organized by racial divides. So when I say by incorporating pop, they had more accessibility. Pop was traditionally associated with quote unquote white identities and R&B music was traditionally associated with black and US identities. And so I go back all the way to minstrelsy and I look at how Black identities were performed and understood through music. And minstrelsy had very negative associations and representations of Black identities. And even Black people would come and participate in these performances to gain access to audiences and to try to break into the music, quote unquote, music industry back then, right? So Mm -hmm. they kind of had to transform and accept their representations of blackness in order to get that access and i look at that from the 1990s all the way to now 2023 what was at the time when i completed the study and looked at how that kind of original idea of music associated with identities based on race translated to the genres that we organize and use in music charts today i traced for example how billboard uh, originally grouped 
black identities in R&B and then they changed the the category to black singles they changed it to um R&B again and then urban music evolved from that as well and that that evolution of blackness being associated with certain genre styles and how that affected the visibility of that music so in Canada we pre predominantly represented Canadian music as white rock and folk artists Mm -hmm. And all of these immigrants that were participating in R&B didn't have the access to the airwaves or, or to television. And so many of them band together and they moved to the U.S. to get that recognition before being accepted in Canada. And they were great. I mean, they had the talent. It, we saw it flourish in the U.S. before Canada came to accept and celebrate these identities. And that's a, a, a through line. The biggest conclusion I came from that from the study was that it had to take American acceptance for us as Canadians to then celebrate it, which of course is terrible, but I also see the move, the, the needle moving where we have new generations like Justin Bieber and Drake who are of different racial identities, not necessarily black and not, and, and not American. They were Canadian artists, but they got to build on the backs and the works of many immigrants before them to gain that access to represent Canadian R&B-ness at global scales. And I say what was different with their generation is, of course, the internet. Having social media platforms, having the online space to amplify their voice and their faces was really important. And then we moved to a generation of Jesse Reyes, who I argue is kind of like the third new generation of Canadian R&B artists who not only have access to the internet, but they also are getting homegrown um, resources. And that was, again, from the works of generations before her, which, again, could be Justin Bieber and Drake's generation with the internet or many of those years before them when we have Cardinal Fischel and Maestro Fresh West and many artists who got that homegrown talent and recognition to pave the way for artists to now do that locally. Mm -hmm. And why do you think it is that it took, uh, you know, the American approval to to kind of start to build that out for those for those artists well in part there's many reasons but in part i believe it's because canadian music industries were very small and they were younger and didn't have as many resources they were very they were like the the younger brother or the younger mm. sister to what the american music industry was and so what they did was focused on a certain style of music and certain predominantly white identities to create the space of a distinctly Canadian voice and sound. And I think that it took American recognition to then say, oh, wait, we can invest in other identities and other genres because they can be profitable as according to what the American American music industry is doing to then now want to invest in those artists. So they almost needed mm -hmm. to see in the pudding, which is terrible because, you know, we had talent here. We had the, the invigoration for wanting to see these, these voices and faces in our media, but it took the kind of American um, success for then Canadians to invest in what they were doing. Mm -hmm. So, and again, this begins from very early on, like the 1960s, 1970s, Toronto clubs were filled with people loving R&B music, soca, reggae. We saw the genre styles being represented on the ground, but not in the media. Interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and how would you say doing this study shaped your perspective and opinion throughout it heavily shaped it. I would say that I became prouder of my or more proud of my Trinidadian roots. I think that 
it also made me reflect on the struggles my parents faced as immigrants. I also my age, you know, this project took seven years. So as, oh as a person, yeah, as a person, I definitely matured over those years of just life experiences, but reflecting and seeing how many interviews of, of immigrant artists just talking about wishing they could get that that recognition in Canada and still having that recognition in the States, but just not getting it here. It made me really sad to see that it took so much for us to finally move that needle and push it forward. But it also was a story of hope as well to see that these artists were able to band together. So it was, when I talk about R&B, it was artists across many genres that were traditionally associated with Black identities. So that could be blues, soca, reggae, traditional R&B as we discuss it, hip hop, all these artists work together in the periphery of society to then push their way in. So it's a story of also collaboration and multiculturalism, essentially, and seeing these artists work together and get that success and finally, you know, pave the way for artists today to be the global sensations of, you know, what Canadian talent is, but just what R&B is at a, at a larger scale. Um, and that mixture of like pop, hip hop and R&B music. But yeah, as a person, I think I've definitely become less afraid to be loud and proud about my roots and my identity. And I think that's also to do with my gender as well. Like I'm a, I'm a woman in very male dominated industries and the same thing with mm -hmm. R&B and hip hop, it's pretty male dominated. So to have a voice, to see artists like Jesse Reyes, a second generation Canadian Colombian woman to be a star in Canadian R&B is a very amazing feeling to, and also just experiencing that now versus what I had in my childhood, not seeing those voices and faces represented. So mm -hmm. definitely I'm a, I'm a proud Canadian Trini woman as, as I stand here. I love it. Um, and that representation is so important. And so that I find that that's something that I really lacked. So I purposely seek it out extra for my son because I'm like, we will not have the same experiences. Like mm -hmm. it will be different. Um, so that comes down to like the music he listens to. We listen to such a variety, um, the things that he watches, the people we talk about, the people I follow online that I show him. And I'm like, hey, look at this cool. I, you know, I work in the influencer marketing space. So I'll be like, look at this cool ad and campaign. And so, and he's Aww. two and a half. He really doesn't care that much. But <laughs> in my head, I'm like, this is doing something. Okay. It's doing yeah. something. Um, so I love that. And how would you say that doing this study reflected uh, in the work that you're doing now? Like, how does that, what did you take away and bring to what you're, you're currently doing? Mm -hmm. Well, as, as I said, I'm in, I'm in marketing and I've, over the last seven years, I've worked at multiple different uh, companies and across many industries and in communications and branding and in marketing. And I've found that being in a position of power to shape how a company is represented and how it can then also resonate with different demographics is a great power to have, whether it's a small startup or a larger, more global scale company. And that's something that I've definitely incorporated into just not digital ads or social media posts, but in the messaging that we use to make it more inclusive and just being more conscious of the diversity that we can represent and also appeal to. I think that's very important in all of the work that I do. Mm -hmm. And you had mentioned being like a minority in the space that you're working in. Um, so how do you kind of pave the way for more diversity in those roles? 
I think the best way to do that is, as I mentioned, being loud and proud of what you're doing. And I think coming on, even speaking with you about it, just getting more, I, I, I don't want to say the word attention, but acknowledgement and also just awareness and spreading that awareness that there are people out there doing what we're doing in different spaces. And I, I, I will go back to an example of when I was in my undergraduate degree that kind of began a lot of where this direction went for my PhD. I was in my third year in my undergraduate degree and I was studying, I had joint honors in fine arts and English. And so I would look at different forms of communication and different forms of representation. And I decided to do a digital media studies uh, specialization, but I didn't really know where that was gonna go. And I kind of culminated all three interests in fine arts, in English and digital media. And I came across the Nicki Minaj video, Pound, Pound the Alarm. And yeah. That represented Trinidad in all of its beauty. She showcased just people cut, slicing co coconuts and drinking it from the coconut or showing uh, kids playing in the beach and just showing the vibrancy of the culture. And that to me in my third year of university was the first time I saw representations of Trinidad in mainstream media. And I was so ecstatic. And I decided I was going to then explore that and analyze it in one of my research papers just for a class. But I didn't know that would spark this interest in looking at how artists represent identity. And so what mm -hmm. I want to suggest is that it's really important to be in these positions, but also to let people know you're in these positions. So seeing Nicki Minaj in that position and, and experiencing that saying, oh my gosh, she's in a position that she can, she can represent Trinidad at large scales. That's something I want to do one day. I want to represent my voices and my experiences and my cultural identity. So I think just having that awareness is the, is the first step to just addressing more diversity and, and representation in culture. Mm -hmm. And it is super important. And like you said, just knowing that she's there doing that is kind of what's inspiring you. And so similar to like what I'm showing my son is that I'm like, hey, there's people out there doing these things, yeah. being successful. Um, I show him a lot of like men of color in these in these media positions and things like that um, mm -hmm. in hopes that, you know, one day he recognizes, oh, maybe that's something that I want to build upon. Yeah. Right. And that's exactly. something that sparks something there. Mm -hmm. um, I was going to say no, I completely agree. And that's the thing you're saying hopes it sparks something because it doesn't even really matter what the direction will be just knowing that it's possible. And that is an option. I think that's the greatest thing. Whether, you know, that's the track you want to go down doesn't really matter. Just knowing that that's there. Exactly. Exactly. That just opens so many doors in itself, in itself, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, knowing that it's possible for you. So can you tell us a little bit about your experience in the workplace now? I mean, we chatted about your experience kind of growing up in these predominantly white spaces, and now you're in a white male dominated industry. Um, can you share a little bit about what that's like for you? I think for me that the biggest um, difference in being an adult versus a child in white male dominated spaces is just really advocating for under room for understanding mm -hmm. and creating spaces where we can have very inclusive and equal opportunities to speak and communicate and share ideas. I think that's the biggest thing I'm trying to advocate for. And the company I'm at is really good at doing that, creating very safe environments to discuss whether it's an issue or whether it's just something you're passionate about. And I think that's really important. And right now I'm doing a lot of 
public speaking as well, just on the side outside of my, my industry work. And I really enjoy public speaking because I think that's a really great way to create that dialogue and mm -hmm. create that room for opportunities to be educated as well as just to create spaces for mistakes. I think having, having public speaking opportunities to talk about what I'm interested in and what I enjoy doing and representate, representing diversity, people can come up to me and feel comfortable enough to say, you know, oh, I made a mistake misunderstanding this and made an assumption about somebody based on stereotypes or, you know, what have you on, on t television or radio. And so I think that's really important to create that room for reflection and then mm -hmm. that room for dialogue. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and have you in your role experienced many like microaggressions or anything like that? I'll say that in the past, I worked as an account manager and I worked in sales mm -hmm and uh, communications and marketing as well. And there's just many different facets where I've been involved in predominantly male teams. Mm -hmm. And I remember one instance, for example, where I was at a conference and I had clients there. This other person was in a more senior position, had clients there. And he came up to me and asked me to entertain one of his clients while he was talking to somebody else. And by entertaining, he also then mentioned how hot I looked that night. And it was just oh. the, yeah. So it was just the assumption that I didn't have as much of as much serious work to do as he did in that situation. Although my clients mm -hmm. were there, he wants me to sing and, and do a little dance for his, his clients until they were ready to chat. And to me, that just made me feel as if my contributions weren't as valuable to right. the company his were, you know, and making those side comments, you know, hot can be interpreted whatever way, but it's just the assumption like that was okay. And I, I think, you know, I hope years down the road, he's realized that was a very condescending way to speak with me. Um, yeah. but again, these, if, if it's common language in your work environment, you might not even have the space to reflect on it and see that. So I think, again, just having these conversations are really important. Mm -hmm. And how do you approach those conversations um, after the fact? Is this something that, you know, you, you mentioned it was years ago. Is this something that at the time you felt comfortable addressing? Honestly, no, because I was much younger. I just started my professional career and I had never been in a situation where, again, I saw somebody else stand up for themselves in that. And I, I was a minority woman again on a team mm -hmm. that I was the only minority woman on that team. So Again, having the examples, as you suggested, you're doing with your son, just knowing that that's there and then you might have the confidence to speak up. I definitely have the confidence now to speak up, but mm -hmm. younger definitely didn't. I didn't have the experience to do so. Yeah. Um, and I ask because I similarly faced uh, different microaggressions in different roles that I was in. And oftentimes it took a really long time for me to get to a position where I was like, this isn't OK. And I want to have the discussion about it rather than just being like, it's it's not fine but I'll dust it under the rug kind of thing mm. right um what are ways that you would recommend other people kind of address discrimination if they're facing it in their roles I think having um the confidence is number one to be able to address it and confidence comes from allowing yourself to see that uh, other people are in those positions that have spoken out, whether like, again, that's watching, listening to a talk or just seeing the visibility of other people in senior roles representing your identities as well, I think is super important. So finding ways to build that confidence is step number one. And then two, 
knowing how you can approach that person, whether you're comfortable doing a one-to-one or you might be more comfortable bringing in someone that's of a senior position that can accompany you in that discussion. It might be a great way to do so because having the one-to-one might seem very confrontational and a little bit more intimidating for you. So if you bring somebody else to the conversations that will have your back and, you know, be able to kind of mediate as well, I think that's a really good way to approach it. Mm-hmm. That's a great approach. Um, thank you for sharing that. Um, what is it about your story do you think is important for other people to hear? I think in terms of the academic track, it's not knowing where I was going at the very beginning. I knew I had my heart set on finishing a PhD and becoming a professor one day, but I had no idea that my identity, my passion, all of these ideas of where I want to go with my future would come out of just the studies I was doing. A single paper I did for my undergraduate degree led to kind of a media frenzy and enabled me to do a TEDx talk. And I had no idea, you know, one paper, what that would turn into. So I think that could be applied in and outside of academia. You never know where one project might lead to. So take everything that you do seriously and give it your all because again, can lead to some amazing things. But in industry, I think one great thing to take away is even if you don't see the representation there, push forward because you want to think about your younger siblings or cousins or distant people that might see you in the position you're in and you might be the inspiration for that person, even if you don't see mm. it. But I think that is those two takeaways from my story. Those are really powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. <laughs> um, is there anything that you're currently working on or trying to raise awareness for? I am currently working on developing my public speaking career. So I Mm -hmm. think that for me, my biggest focus is addressing not only the dissertation and talking about that missing history of Canadian R&B that has been there for so long that I just really passionate about getting those voices and faces represented and enabling people to really understand that there's so many contributors, contributors to our culture that go unrecognized. So I think that is the biggest thing I want to focus on moving forward for the next year. Amazing. Um, and so incredible that you were able to do a TEDx talk that is so <laughs> impactful. Was it on the same subject? It was on actually, yes, it was on uh, Drake's representation of of different identities across different music videos and then turning my education into a career. So yeah. (laughs) I love that. Um, Was there a key takeaway from your Ted talk that you would be willing to share with us? Yeah. I closed the TEDx talk with uh, the words to allow people to see the world through your eyes. And what I meant by that, by allowing people to see the world through your eyes, I was suggesting that every individual has a unique set of cultural experiences and opinions and just perspectives and to enable people to hear your voice and see the world the way you do can create a lot of opportunities for inclusivity and just spaces for understanding. So I think that's the the most important thing to share your story. Love it. And thank you so much for joining us and doing that today. Um, How can our listeners best find or support you? The best way to reach out to me would be through my website. It's www.dramarapope.ca, dramarapope.ca. And on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, my handle is the same across. It's at D-R-A-M-A 
R-A-P-O-P-E. So at Dr. Amar Pope. <laughs> Perfect. I'll have that linked below. Um, thank you so, so much for taking the time and energy to chat with us today to share a little bit about your PhD um, study, which I think is amazing. And I want to learn more about it because uh, it's definitely something that you don't really think about until you think about it. And then once you do, you're like, wait a second, I need to learn more. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's been a great chat.